ready to wake up, you're going to wake up. And if you're not ready, you're going to stay pretending that you're just a little, poor little me. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty. In the 17th chapter of St. Luke, it is written, the kingdom of God is within man, not one man, nor a group of men, but in all men, in you, you the people have the power. The world is like a ride at an amusement park, and when you choose to go on it, you think it's real, because that's how powerful our minds are. Everybody is I. You all know you are you. And wheresoever beings exist throughout all galaxies, it doesn't make any difference. You are all of them. And when they come into being, that's you coming into being. Yo, 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 beautiful people. How's it going? So, just before we dive into this week's podcast, I just really wanted to highlight um, the latest news about the Amazon rainforest. I'm sure you've all seen it on social media and on the, on certain new chat news channels and stuff, but it's really devastating stuff what is going on there. And I know there's a lot of conspiracies around it, which I'm not going to dive, dive into. But what really pisses me off and I really wanted to highlight is I see a lot of news outlets in certain people in the public eye making certain comments saying things like, well, it's not even the lungs of the planet. But at the end of the day, who gives who gives a fuck on percentages and how much it really is it plays a part in our sort of, in being the lungs of the planet. At the end of the day, when something on the magnitude of this is burning down and the impact it actually has on our ecosystem, all the little squabbles and all egos need to be pushed aside and we have to, we have the opportunity to do something about it. So it really pisses us off when people are squabbling over of, of squabbling over little statistics and trying to get one over each other and trying to just put their own egos over something that is important is this. It really does frustrate me and I and I really can't get around how anyone who is not who any anyone who is not um not a human being would actually allow something on the magnitude of the rainforest to be to just be allowed to burn down i mean are we going to are we going to look back and say 15 or even 10 years time to our to our future children and just say that we stood back and we didn't even do anything about it because 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 it's not even the lungs of the planet i mean come on man it's absolutely mental. But anyway, that's my rant. I just wanted to sort of highlight that. Sorry to go on a rant, but I just really think it's a it's a really important time. And it really um it really is frustrating at times. I mean, there's so many amazing things going on in the planet, so many amazing people really stepping forward and really trying to make a change in so many areas. But then at the same time, we look at leaders around the world and certain leaders around the world they, they to me they just don't seem they just don't seem human i mean how can we ever put our faith in in nearly all of these leaders around the world it really is frustrating at times when people are willing to just sit back and allow something that is such a part of as such an intrinsic part of of earth itself and we're just going to sit back and allow it to just sort of burn down come on but anyway that's enough of that rant. There's so many positive things going on in this planet. There really is. And today's guest is one of them. He's somebody who was doing some really, he's been doing some really interesting stuff on the environmental front for many for many years and really trying to spread awareness on many different fronts. 
So anyway, today's guest on the podcast is a guy called Rory Spowers. He's done so much stuff. Um, he is a BBC journalist and environmentalist. He's been developing environmental documentaries for the last 15 years. He started an organic farm and sustainable lifestyle in Sri Lanka a few years back. He also walked the length of India in pursuing of a spiritual quest. He also wrote a book called Three Men on a Bike, which basically re-encountered his story where he bought a three-seated three, uh, three bicycle and he rode the length of Africa with his friends. So as you can tell, he's a really interesting guest. And I just wanted to mention before we jump with this podcast that I'm really gutted about this podcast because it is an awesome conversation, as you will see, and I'm sure you'll love it. But when I've looked back to the audio file, which I'm really gutted about, the conversation is only about 35 minutes long. And sometimes when I record these conversations, before we even record the podcast itself and press record on the recorder, sometimes before we actually have a podcast before the podcast, if that makes sense. Sometimes we just have a general chat and we start even getting into some of the topics before we even press record and press the recording button. And this is what definitely happened in this one. Me and Rory were just talking for at least 20, 30, 40 minutes before even the podcast and we were talking about loads of stuff. And I just said, Rory, we're going to have to just jump in with the podcast now. And I just completely lost track of time. I really thought that this was going on for an hour because as I said... The pre-podcast and the podcast itself all blended into one. It's one general conversation. And I just completely lost track of time and actually only got about 35 minutes on recording, which I'm gutted about. So I'm really sorry about that. So please let us off with that one. It really uh, is frustrating, that one, because as you will see on the recording itself, Rory is such a guy who is has so many different interests and facets. He's been on so many interesting journeys across all many different parts of the world and and done so many interesting things and still doing so many interesting things so anyway i hope you pardon me for that one and i'm sure in the future i will get him back on and we'll dive even deeper into his stuff but anyway this is a nice little warm-up we touched on some very interesting concepts he's a very interesting guy so i know you're going to love this one and please if you can check out the patreon page it really would mean a lot if you could just head over there and check it out patreon page really is the best way to help me to keep doing what i'm doing as you know i'm traveling all over the place to do all these different podcasts it does really take a, a big chunk of my life i'm really putting a lot into this for you all and i'm really trying to get the best out of all these guests and all i'm asking you is please if you can find it in your heart and support the podcast through the patreon page and if you can it that's also absolutely fine support the podcast in whatever way you can even if it's just thoughts alone that means a lot. Anyway, I know I know you are all out there on a very similar journey to myself and I really do appreciate that all our journeys are all colliding together. It really means a lot. So anyway, enjoy this conversation with Rory Spowers. Enjoy. obviously loads of different places we can take this podcast like i said i've read a few of your books and um sort of look through a few of your books anyway and 
you've been a you've lived definitely such a rich life in my opinion some of the things that you've talked about i mean one of the good starting areas i thought would be really sort of um good to talk about is is the time when you you, you cycled a bike across africa <laughs> could you talk about what was the sort of the the the, the reasoning behind that Sure, it's it's a great place to start because it was really it's been incredibly formative in terms of the direction my life has taken since. So, I was just leaving university in Edinburgh in 1988 or something, long time ago now, and a friend of mine had just discovered mountain bikes and also just been to Africa for the first time and said that he wanted to ride a mountain bike through Africa when he left university and. Um, I think I'd had a bit to drink at the time and made the wild suggestion that we should go together on the, the goodies trandum, which um, for you're probably too young to, to remember the goodies, but they were a famous comedy series in the 1970s on the BBC and they had this iconic bike with three seats, like a tandem, but they called it the trandum. My brother had bought it from an auction of BBC props um, when he'd lost his driving licence at the time and thought it was a sensible passenger vehicle to have in London. <laughs> So I said, well, why don't we go together on the, on the goodies tandem? And, and you know, we can make a film and write a book and raise money for charity and the rest of it. Anyway, my friend took it very seriously and spent a few months persuading me that this was the ultimate career move. Um, so that was how that got started. I, I, I got on board, uh, literally and metaphorically, and we found two other willing friends to join us. We had a mountain bike as our support vehicle. And we spent a year cycling from, well, the South African Botswana border back to London we were originally going to start in Cape Town, but it was in the days of apartheid and sponsors were not too happy about us going through South Africa. So we started in Gaborone and we ended up in London. Uh, we flew from Cairo to Milan, so cycled from Milan back to London. And the only stretch we missed out was southern Sudan for all sorts of obvious reasons, not least the, the war and lack of roads. Um, but it was an amazing adventure and it really woke me up to... All sorts of things made me really reappraise my notions of development and progress and happiness uh, in life and what was important. But also, I suppose, most importantly, just what we were doing to the planet. And I came back in 1990 uh, in my early 20s and it pretty much sort of set the agenda for the rest of my life ever since, really about you know, trying, to, trying to wake people up to what's going on. So is that was the, the main aim of the sort of the cycle on the bike across Africa? Was it sort of in aid of sort of trying to raise some sort of... Um... Well, the, 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 that kind of came as a product of it. We, we raised money for an African medical charity doing research into to AIDS and malaria at the time, African Medical Research Foundation, um, and also a charity based in the UK that took terminally ill children to Disneyland uh, as a sort of once-in-a-lifetime experience. And... Um, we felt we were having a once-in-a-lifetime experience, and those were the two charities um, that we supported. But when I came back at the end of it, yes, I found the transition back into my sort of normal conventional existence was was very hard, and it had a massive influence on on where I felt I sort of could fit into all of this without being a part of the of the sort of economic machine that I saw that was destroying the planet. So what sort of so how long did it actually take you to, to cycle? Well, it across? took a year, I think, and we yeah we weren't cycling every day. A lot of the time, we 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 had ten cases of malaria between four of us. Wow. We had appalling issues trying to get visas for Sudan. We broke down every day of the year except two. 
Um, so we had sort of endless pitfalls. And the, the bike itself had been built in the 1930s, so it was hardly the most uh, uh, suitable practical vehicle to take the length of Africa. What would you? What was the bike's name again? What's the? How would you? Well, they, the goodies called it a trandom, like a tandem, Tran- except with three seats, two wheels, three seats. But um, I think, strictly speaking, in the sort of cycling fraternity, it's known as a triplet. And they used to build bikes as as pacing bikes for for for, for conventional racing in in in, in velodromes. So what was that? What was that like with the sort of having the experience with two of a sort of counterparts on the on the same bike? Well, sorry, as I said, there were, well, there were four of us. We had this mountain bike as well, oh, right. and we swapped seats every 10 miles. All oh, right. Um, and unbelievably, yes, we all still very good friends. And funny enough, next week we're getting together for our 30-year oh, anniversary. Um, but we're all now in our early 50s, not our early 20s. So, so no, no plans to do Africa on a bike again? <laughs> I don't think so, funny enough. I, I mean, the friend who catalyzed the whole thing is, is, has remained a, a cycling fanatic and still cycles uh, is, you know, all over the place. Um, but the, uh, the rest of us, less so. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't, yeah, absolutely no regrets. Um, it was well, it was the best thing I, I think I ever did. And, and I think that would count for the rest of them. I think for all of us, it really shaped uh, the way, the direction our lives took ever since. So what was the, so you would say, you, like you said, it just shaped your, your life. How would you say that, that from that moment of doing that shaped your life in other areas? Well, I think, yeah, it, it awoke this more sort of ecological consciousness. Yeah, this direct connection with with nature sleeping outside under the stars almost every night and and living this very nomadic life with very few possessions by the time we got to the end of the year we were sharing one small cycle pannier between two of us and it made me realize just how little importance material objects really were uh, we spent a lot of time with some of the conventionally you know, by a material Western standard of living some of the poorest people in the world, but also who struck me always as being some of the happiest people I'd ever encountered. Funny, most that, everyone always says that, don't they? Yes, it's unbelievably selfless hospitality everywhere we went, and particularly pronounced in, in somewhere like northern Sudan, where we were, were following donkey tracks beside the Nile, and there was days and days would pass where there was absolutely no sign of anything to tell you in the, the 20th century which it was then and it was something sort of biblical and timeless um, about this landscape and these people and if we if we literally took up every invitation to have a meal or stay the night we would still be there that's cool <laughs> that's really cool though, to actually have to say that um so so then i would love to talk about the next part of your journey because obviously I know I'm sort of skimming over it and there's more to the sure. bike, but you've done so many things, so I really want to try and sure, sure. sort of get a good picture of everything that you've done because I think it is fa- fascinating. So th- was the next part of your journey, was it to walk across India? That came a, a fair bit later. I think when we ended up in northern Sudan, we ended up doing a lot of walking because we simply couldn't ride the bicycle. Oh, <laughs> yeah, right. Well, mountain bike possibly, but even then there were areas we couldn't even ride the mountain bike. But the tandem itself was impossible. So we did a lot of walking and pushing and carrying of, of bicycles. And it really made me realize that as much as I loved cycling as a way to experience a landscape and, and, and interact with people, walking was somehow even better and somehow even more getting back to the way we were sort of designed to move. And so I, India had always been my great passion rather than Africa. I went to India when I was young and I'd always been very obsessed with India. So I harboured this notion of, of one day walking through India. Um, 
And during my 20s, I suppose the sort of internal sort of spiritual journey really kicked off. I'd always been very drawn to Eastern traditions and I got very deeply into meditation and uh, and came up with this fanciful pilgrimage route from the south to north of India. And then a friend noticed a competition running in the independent newspaper at the time, said, look, you should enter this and, and suggest you go walk through India. So I filled out a form and, and sent it off and really thought nothing more of it. Didn't think I stood a chance, but um, suddenly I was called in and won this prize and some money. And suddenly I found I had to go and do this, this, this walk uh, 2000 miles from the south to north of India taking me to all of these uh, sacred places that I wanted to visit and connecting various teachings and teachers along the way. Uh, so that was that was when I was nearly 30. Um, and at the time, I mean, it's during my 20s, I was busy trying to make environmental documentaries, trying to get into that sort of world with very limited success. There'd been a, a spate of environmental documentary making uh, just before I really kind of got into that. And then suddenly it all went dead. Nobody wanted to hear these sort of catastrophic um, alarmist uh, images, uh, pictures of what might be coming in the future. I worked with an environmental documentary maker. Um, and then suddenly I, I got hoiked off to, to do this walk through India and came back and started writing a book about that. But it was one of those things, it was still sort of too close to me. I couldn't really make it palatable I don't think to 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 other readers uh, and I got commissioned at the time the the people the company Canongate who published my first book Three Men on a Bike not too surprisingly about the journey through Africa um, commissioned me to write a book about the history of environmentalism uh, called Rising Tides which was published I think in 2002 and that was really looking at not just the rising tide of world sea levels but also this rising tide of, of opposition to the economic paradigm that's effectively destroying the planet and taking us into this climate emergency which we're now deeply in and I suppose the thing that really fascinated me the most was how had we managed to separate ourselves from nature uh, this illusory conceptual separation which if we think about it, you know, it is obviously um, completely erroneous and so that was always the thing that fascinated me the most and looking at everything from the agricultural revolution when we moved from being nomadic hunter-gatherers to, to settlements through to uh, Newtonian physics, uh, Descartes' famous uh, uh, split between the mind and the body and the way that that has in a way been reinforced right through to the modern day. And I think we're now at this sort of zenith of this very individualized, atomized sense of who we are. Uh, but I feel that's starting to break apart. And um, I, my, 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 my hope is that the scientific paradigm is converging on what the mystics have said for thousands of years, that consciousness is actually primary. It's not just a product of, of complex neuronal firing in the brain and an epiphenomenon. Uh, but something much more fundamental to the universe. And that this sense of we're moving, uh, Charles Eisenstein, I don't know if you know, is an amazing uh, American yeah. activist and writer, and he beautifully, uh, very elegantly uh, depicts this whole journey. And he talks about the end of the age of separation and moving into this story or this age of, of interbeing. And I really think that that is what's what's happening. Would you say, when you were talking about the spiritual aspect of um, sort of on your pilgrimage through India, sort of say, did you, would you say that that when you said you met a few spiritual teachers and stuff, did that does that did that whole journey um, 
of meeting these different spiritual teachers and embedding yourself in a different form of culture did that sort of um play a part in your sort of understanding of your own like your sort of thoughts about spirituality and consciousness now in your life yes very much so i think it, for many years i i read many of these teachers and teachings without really being able to understand what they were talking yeah. about but eventually it started to, to permeate and there were definitely pivotal moments on the walk through India I mean I remember particularly just one day when I was walking along and I suddenly had one of those sort of epiphany experiences where I realized that that I was intimately connected with everything that I previously seen as being outside of me and I think we've all had those experiences especially in childhood I think that's probably where we all start the original face that the, the Buddhist you know, Zen Buddhists point to what were you before you were given a name and before this this narrative about who and what you are had really sort of kicked off and fully constellated so absolutely I've been deeply deeply influenced by Indian teachings particularly now that well for the last 25 years by the the, the non-dualist teachings in India particularly Advaita Vedanta but also the essence of Taoism is there within the Christian mystical tradition too it's there in the Old Testament New Testament etc so it's that has been the point that's sort of informed me ever since in a way and I think that's the sort of the next Copernican revolution if you like that if the scientific paradigm does converge on this notion that consciousness is primary rather than secondary to matter than any trickle-down effect on our economics our politics our sense of who and what we are how we connect to each other um, and to nature itself uh, is the pivotal thing that could actually turn the ship around and in fact i would go so far as to say that without that happening we really haven't got a hope <laughs> yeah definitely no, I'm, I'm, compl I'm completely with you we need a, yeah. need a shift in the sort of the tides like that yeah um I wanted to ask you, I know there was a part of your book that I read where you said that you spent a night lost in the forest. What was the story behind that? Oh, yes. Um, in India, yes, I I went deeply into Andhra Pradesh. I, I walked through Tamil Nadu in the southeast, and then there's a, the next state up is Andhra Pradesh, which is very untraveled. And I really got off the beaten track there. I was definitely walking in areas where people had never seen white people before. My children would run away screaming when they saw me. And I tried to take what I thought was a shortcut through the Nalamalai forest in central Andhra Pradesh. And yes, it, it got pretty... Uh, the, the locals were definitely trying to persuade me not to do it. Yeah. <laughs> As they were. But I thought it was fairly sort of alarmist uh, tales about wild animals. But uh, I later found out that they weren't alarmist. They were, they were very much for real. And of course I got lost and every time I thought I was emerging from this forest and got to the end of it, I'd get up to the top of another ridge and just see nothing but miles and miles of more forest. So I, I had a very paranoid few hours. I think I walked 56 miles or something in one go. Um, and eventually, uh, after 18 hours of walking, I, I emerged out the other side of this unscathed. But there were periods where I, I literally walked around in circles and was convinced I was about to die a violent death in the jaws of a tiger. <laughs> so uh, that was one of the more hairy moments. And um, yeah. So was the po po I imagine that journey being scary as well, because obviously, you sort of not knowing what's in that forest as well at the same time. Did you? Was there a moment in that? in that sort of a sense where you had to surrender was because obviously there's always a moment where you're, you're getting yourself wound up whatever you're doing and then there's always always a point in the mind where you just say like just calm yourself and surrender was there a moment of that in there yes no absolutely it sort of becomes the only 
way out really in those sort of situations because otherwise you get into a sort of vicious spiral don't you yeah of paranoia and fear so i i yes i it was it was it was a scary moment because it was it was pitch dark and there were there were big things about i could hear them i don't know if there were necessarily tigers but there were certainly you know bears and leopards and things in that area and elephants too which of course can be extremely dangerous so yeah it kept me on my toes but um, i'm still here to tell it yeah tale. definitely <laughs> thankfully what was the what was the story about when you because i read in your book as well like you said you got attacked in a fishing village what was yes i would that was on the coast of moving from Andhra Pradesh into Arissa, and again i thought i was taking a bit of a shortcut but i was walking along the coast and some very very isolated fishing communities and some of these communities are they're almost uh, communities of within the indian caste system of, of untouchables or, or dalits and some of them they were pretty rough looking people quite sort of pirate like and i suddenly found myself getting surrounded on the beach and people were picking up clubs and uh, walking towards me and it definitely I'd suddenly realised that you know, if, if they did away with me there and then no one would have been any the wiser because I was so far from anywhere. Uh, but I also remembered I had a I had a penknife on on my belt in a sort of little leather pouch, and funnily enough, I all the way when I got into remote areas, people would point to it and ask if it was a gun, and it it looked nothing like a gun. It was nothing big enough to be a gun, but I did sort of fall back on that and I I reached for it. And I flipped open the sort of pop stud on the leather holster uh, and they all took a step back thinking I was reaching for a weapon and that gave me just enough time to to run and I I ran into the village because I knew there would be women and children there who might defuse the situation I ran round the corner of a hut and stepped straight into the the decomposing eviscerating remains of a recently slaughtered goat and literally ran through the village uh, with these you know, entrails of this goat wrapped around my ankles, <laughs> being chased by screaming children and ranting men with clubs. And I think I, you know, I ran for a couple of miles in, you know, further on into a, into a sort of eucalyptus plantation and lost myself again. But um, yes, again thankfully emerged unscathed. Yeah, so, so they just sort of, you just sort of lost them when you run, run away. Uh, they, they, yeah, they gave up. Yeah. And... Um, and eventually I got back to a road. But I I suppose I, there were a couple of incidents like that in India and a couple of incidents like that in Africa. But by and large, I think most of the, the travel I've done in, in, in Africa and India, I've been, I've found nothing but uh, amazing hospitality and goodwill. That's cool. When you, when you, I know you slightly mentioned on this before about the aspect of walking and the impact of walking on, on all across a landscape. But what was, what was it, to go, to go a little bit deeper, what was it about sort of walking that you loved the most? There's, yeah, I think there's just something about walking that is just naturally, inherently meditative. I think we all know that if we're struggling with a problem, we're struggling with an emotional crisis or whatever it may be, if we get out and go for a long walk, we invariably feel better. I mean, it's scientifically proven now that actually... All sorts of things happen to the body when we get outside and immerse ourselves in nature and the physical action of walking, what that actually does to you. And I do think it's probably the most efficient, effective and immediate cheapest form of therapy and connection that's available to us. It's what we were sort of designed to do. And I'm always amazed how resistant people are to, to going for a walk. And I think that's so symptomatic of this deep 
disconnection that is is what we're we're suffering from as a culture and we urgently urgently need to to reawaken yeah it must have also as well sort of um allowed you to see sort of the landscape in a way that you would never really see it by car or sort of travel because i think a lot of times when you have a journey now we just have the ability just to fly well, exactly and uh, <clears throat> the bicycle of course too you're exposed to the elements you're exposed to the smells, smells and the sounds and the insects and the rest of it but walking somehow is even more immersive and the, the, the transitions in the landscape are that much more profound. And it was very interesting as I walked from South India up to the north, as I got into the more meat-eating north out of the you know, predominantly vegetarian south, the levels of subliminal aggression seemed to, seemed to correlate with that transition, for instance. Whereas if I'd done that by train or in a car, <clears throat> it wouldn't have been so observable. Yeah. Uh, so, I I still love to walk. I think it's 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 such a, a it's such a fantastic systemic way of 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 dealing with your physical fitness, but with also emotional turmoil and depression and all sorts of things. Yeah, definitely. So, what was the? I would love to sort of now try and get to the transition of where you started this um, sort of self sustainable lifestyle in Sri Lanka. I think it was. Yeah. What was yes. the what was the transition there? Well, I came back from walking through India and I wrote this book, Rising Tides, um, which I referenced earlier. And at the same time, I, I, I couldn't afford to live in London. I didn't really want to live in London. And I was very drawn to the Welsh borders, having really initially gone to, to walk around uh, all the secondhand bookshops in Hay on Wye, which is obviously now famous for its literary festival. But I, I felt that was as close as I could be to London and still have this wild landscape. And I literally rang up an estate agent one day and asked them what was the remotest, cheapest property they had on their books and more or less bought it the next week. And I loved living down there uh, for about four years. But at the same time, I uh, got married to uh, uh, my ex-wife, who's from the Caribbean, from Barbados and so she was rather less enamoured with uh, living in mid Wales which in retrospect is totally understandable but I didn't really get it at the time and so we, we, we had an ongoing conversation for several years about where to go and live in the world when we first met we had travelled uh, a bit in India and we'd gone to Sri Lanka and we'd made some good friends there and we, we loved it we had an amazing time and that was sort of back in the late 90s and it was still a very untravelled place so you know, eventually we, we, we took the plunge and in 2004 with two very young children, uh, both under three years old, uh, we moved lock, stock and barrel to Sri Lanka in uh, the March 2004, I think. But nine months before the tsunami hit in uh, on Boxing Day 2004, which was obviously rather ironic for me considering I'd just written this book called Rising Tides and, yes. and moved <laughs> across the world really to sort of immerse myself in a, a very buy a diverse place where I could buy a sizable chunk of land for not much money uh, and grow things. I really wanted to just grow stuff and and connect with the, with the land and which I've been trying to do in Wales but rather you know, rather hampered by the, the, the weather and short growing season and the rest of it. Um, and then post a year after the tsunami the civil war re-erupted so it was it was a really difficult time. We bought. I, I never intended to buy such a big bit of land, but the first bit of land I was shown was a sixty-acre abandoned tea estate about twenty kilometres inland from the coast. So quite a lot further away than than, than where we, other, you know, other foreigners were looking and living. 
and but it just all stacked up to be irresistible it was and it's still it's, i still we still have it it's called samarkanda and it's um it's been, it's been run as a sort of ecotourism destination ever since but i was more interested yes in trying to implement some of these what at the time i called sustainable lifestyle solutions to try and create a demonstration role model of some of these things in practice from renewable energies to permaculture inspired edible landscape systems um, ecological building um, using mud and uh, wood from on site etc so that was really the mission but of course the with the with the tsunami and the civil war tourism was just off the map so we really struggled um, I was doing a bit of ecological consultancy work for the hotel industry and stuff as well which was keeping me afloat and then I wrote a, a third book called A Year in Green Tea and Tuk Tuks, which was really about that whole kind of process and that era. And it was part sort of memoir, travelogue, but also trying to, to present my thinking around these kind of sort of systems change issues. And and then I, I was there full time for a few years, and but really struggling and marriage wasn't sort of the happiest at the time and I started coming back to England more for work reasons and uh, I still and then toing and froing from Sri Lanka but ended up in a, in a beta in 2000 end of 2011 uh, where I'd never been and had always dismissed as being the last place in the world I wanted to go but Bruce Parry um, yeah, you know, the explorer uh, had been living there for some years and I, I bumped into him in London in a, in a pub I'd known him for a few years and he told me about this film project he he had on the go, and he invited me over <clears throat> to Ibiza to stay and to and to cut along. I ended up working with him from 2012 uh, on a film called Tawai, which came out uh, a couple of years ago now, and I've stayed in Ibiza ever since. And um, it was yeah, you know, in a way, it was a fantastic transition. And my children and my ex-wife also moved to Ibiza too and um, it's been fantastic for all of us actually. and that, that documentary as well is such a it's such a powerful documentary um, I recommend that Great. all the time on the podcast it really is honestly I mean yes. I remember at the end of that that um, documentary it's, it's such a um, powerful message and it really it does transcend across the importance of what we uh, what us as a culture are do uh, how we're impacting the lives of other people which yeah. I think is a, a big thing yeah um, the element I want to touch on you again I sort of slipped my mind of what was it again I wanted to touch on with you again I want to ask you, um, what did you? I'm going to come back to the Taiwan bit as well. Yes, I want to touch on that. Yeah, but when you spent a year living sort of off grid, sort of say, um, living a self sustainable lifestyle, what did that um, first year, that period of that first year, where you immersed yourself in it, what did it teach you most about self sustainability? Well, I, I think it made me realise just how much we've given away our power over our essential human needs within our culture and that we've become to believe that we need all of these centralized hierarchically controlled systems that we are dependent upon for our energy needs our food our water and all of these essential things and that really what is needed now is us at a sort of community and bioregional level to to take these things back under our control and that the future is if there is to be a future i believe that the only viable alternative we have is to somehow transition from this increasingly homogenized centralized um, linear system to one that's inherently cyclical regenerative by design 
and is a distributed network model, a fully decentralized model. And I think that, so that was really what I was trying to implement in, in Sri Lanka in a very sort of ambitious fashion. And I, you know, I was far from achieving that, but that was certainly the goal. But I think uh, that is what we need to aim for now. And of course, it's very difficult. I think within these circles, we're very hung up on how we make a sort of system, a systemic change. We can't, we can't kind of get there from here, as it were. We can't incrementally optimize these broken systems and make them work. As as, as a quote by David Lloyd George, um, you you can never cross a chasm in two leaps. And I think it's just a big debate often within sort of the environmental arena is about whether you actually work with some of these big mature companies and try and bring them into line but fundamentally there are certain industries that are just not compatible with with a, a regenerative and cyclical circular economy um, and we've we basically stepped outside the system over the last few hundred years particularly or especially since the, the industrial revolution we're the only species to, to generate waste climate change is the most catastrophic example of that we've taken all of this safely sequestered carbon out of the earth's crust and put it up in the atmosphere where it's not supposed to be. And we, you know, in, in, in one year, we're taking uh, what nature has taken a million years to safely sequester into the into the ground. So uh, I think that is, we've not only stepped outside of the system with a sort of linear economy and sort of linear design processes, but also I think we've, we've stepped outside of the system in terms of who we think we are. We've become very centered or very focused or identified with this sort of left hemisphere of the brain with 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 the rational intellectual empirical more masculine side of 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 our being at the expense of this more feminine and intuitive side we're very we're so caught up in trying to explain everything in language and a very sort of linear causality kind of understanding of of what's of, of what how the world works and I think that's maybe where the psychedelic component comes in. And I think that the be, what, the reason it was the great catalyst in the, in the 60s counterculture for all of these other movements, which we've now embraced within the mainstream, from yoga and mindfulness to, to vegetarianism, animal rights, civic rights. Yeah. But all of these were catalyzed by the psychedelic experience, which is the one thing that we haven't really managed to integrate. And I think that the psychedelic experience does precipitate a more systemic, holistic an integrated conception of the world. One is one is able to break out of this consensus reality and see how intimately connected with not just nature and the natural world, but everything, the rest of the universe. And I think that's a very important and profound realization on this collective healing journey that we need to make and that need to break down this very sort of atomized, individualized culture and recognize uh, that we are deeply, deeply interconnected with, with each other, with the natural world and the universe itself. Yeah, cool. I think we'll leave it there. It's a powerful point to leave it on. Thank you so much, honestly. Brilliant. Fantastic, Dan. A real cool. pleasure to talk to you. you know, yeah, no, great. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. I hope you liked that conversation there. I thought it was a really cool one. I think you really had some really, Rory had some really cool adventures. And I was so glad to sort of sit down and record a conversation with him. I'm sure in the future I'll definitely going to be catching up with him again. I'm sure that'll definitely happen and we'll dive even deeper into his journeys and some of the stories and lessons he learned from traveling 
in his time setting up a self-sustainable community. So thank you so much for listening to the podcast. If you can, find it in your heart and support the podcast through the Patreon page. It really is the best way to help me to keep doing what I'm doing. And thank you so much to all the current patrons who support. You really help this podcast keep going. So thank you from the bottom of my heart for helping out through the Patreon page. Just to play this conversation out, I'm going to play a song called Grun, which means green in Germany. Uh, this was a song, an, an artist that I found when I was doing a bit travelling in Spain. I think it was two years ago or a year ago, I can't remember now. But anyway, it was an interesting guy I met called Andrew. And he's from Germany and he's got a, his, his artist name is called Tramper. So definitely recommend checking him out. And I know you listen to this podcast as well, Andrew. So this, so this is just a song to let you know that I never forgot about you. And I know I played one of your songs in the past. So this is another song I want to play again. It's called Grun and it's an awesome song. And I know for a fact you will all love it. So anyway, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And I'm looking forward to in the up and coming weeks to sharing all the rest of the podcasts that I've got coming up. So anyway, I love you all and keep seeking people and enjoy this track called Grun by Trumper. Peace out. Schaust zur Sonne, drehst dich weg von mir Zeigst nur noch Schattengefühl Genießt den letzten Tag, lieg im Bett mit dir Von heute an wird es auf ewig zerwühlen Die Reise treibt dich weit und weiter Du suchst nur viel zu nah, denn nah ist alles bekannt Schreibst in den Himmel, dass du nicht weißt, was du suchst Und was dein leeres Herz von dir ist verlangt Und du siehst mich grün, 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 grün Sind die Felder am Sonnen Versuch einmal, wie weit du in Gedanken so kommst Spring in den Himmel, wie die Sonne, die strahlt Und entfliehe an meinen kalten Beton Öffne die Augen und beginne den Weg Lass es zu, dass die Sonne dich treibt Schau in den Himmel, alles was du erlebst Helle Momente, deine Sterne der Zeit Und du siehst doch grün, 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 grün Sind die Felder am Sonnen und, und Grün, 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 grün Zieh die Welt an und dann tanz Ja, dann tanz Komm, wir fahren nirgends hin Leben von Tag zu Tag Der Sommer ist noch lang Und es bleibt von diesen Jahren Das ist das, was war Sonnenuntergang Grün, 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 grün Sind 
Wälder am Sonnen und und Untergang. Grün, 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 sieh die Welt an und dann tanzt. Ja, dann tanzt. 